guys remember musical chairs, right? I mean, if you grew up as a kid, you probably played musical chairs. Simple, simple game. Not a lot of rules to it. The only thing you need for musical chairs is just a little bit of music, right? And, and the game is played really, really simply. There's a certain number of chairs out there and you just walk around while the music plays. And then all you have to do, as soon as the music stops, you just take a seat. Very, very simple. Except... There is one less chair than there are people. So that adds a little bit of stress to the game, right? So you're going around and you're walking and you're trying to like keep your hand maybe on a chair because you, know, you never know when the music's gonna stop. You just don't know. And then as soon as the music stops, I mean, it's like a bloodletting. I mean, there's pushing, there's shoving because everybody wants their chair, right? And once you get your chair, you like grab onto the side so that nobody else can take it from you. It's like this game teaches us scarcity. Like, I got to look out for mine. I got to get my chair. Maybe you'll get your chair, but I'm going to make sure that I get my chair. This is a game that leaves us walking and wondering, is there going to be a chair for me when the music stops? I love what one author said about this. She said, we played musical chairs, which I loathed, and which may have scarred me for life. I still worry about adequate seating. Usually some poor kid who was not paying attention got stuck without a chair. Then he stood awkwardly and felt blazingly stupid while everyone else sat comfortably and looked smug. It was a terrible game, a lesson in exclusion executed to maximum humiliation. Will there be a chair for you when the music stops? That's the question that I want us to be exploring a little bit today. But as we start to think about that question, we're going to think about it through the life of David. We're going to be talking about not just any chair. We're going to be talking about a chair at the king's table. And the question for us today is, is there going to be a chair for me when the music stops? There's three questions that I want us to think about today as we think about the chair of David. One is, the first question would be, who receives a seat at the table? Who gets a chair at the king's table? A second question I want us to think about is, if I have a table, what does this chair represent? What does having a seat at the table represent? And the third question is, if I have a seat at the table, what is my response to that? What is gonna be my response? And the answers might surprise you a little bit because as we've been unpacking this series, one of the things I've been saying over and over is to expect the unexpected. That's exactly right, Dakota. You never miss it. I love it. I want us to walk back through a little bit and talk about some of the unexpected things that we've seen in the life of David so far. The very first sermon that we had, we talked about that there was an unexpected king. The shepherd boy becomes king. And then there's this incredible unexpected hero as David steps to the forefront and slays Goliath. Totally unexpected. But then there's an unexpected enemy of David. The king suddenly becomes jealous of David and he wants to have David removed, an unexpected enemy. And then in the midst of that adversity, God gives David an unexpected friend and that's Jonathan. Jonathan was the son of King Saul who was trying to kill him. So when we left off last week, we were talking about the most difficult time in the life of David. 
Now today, as we look into the life of David, the story that we're gonna look at today, the complete opposite is true. You could look at what we're gonna talk about today and say this is the pinnacle of David's life. Nothing could have been better for him. He's actually officially crowned. Now he's seated on the throne in the palace. His enemies, the Philistines that he's been battling for years, all of them are at bay at this point in his life. The economy is booming. Because of all the people that they've conquered, the coffers of the palace are full. Gold and silver is overrunning everywhere. The Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God, is back in the palace, back in the tabernacle where it belongs. In the days of running away from King Saul for your life, dodging the spears of King Saul, those things are a distant memory in the rearview mirror for him. So you think about for David, I mean, this is the time for him to chillax a little bit. Just relax, take a deep breath, and not think about anything. Just relax. But David is thinking about something. There's a question that's burning down in his soul. And in this story, we see that it's a very unexpected question. And that's where our story begins, is David actually verbalizing this question. 2 Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 1, as the story begins, it says, David asked, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom, I, to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now I'm imagining, as David said that to his advisors, that that question just landed with a thud. And if there was a, a bubble like a cartoon bubble that went above the head of his advisors that talks about what it is that they were thinking. I'm imagining that that bubble would be filled with the words, who cares? Who cares if there's anybody left from the family of Saul? David, we've spent these last years doing everything we can to exterminate everyone from the family of Saul because they understood how it worked. Saul and his bloodline, that is the old regime. David, a new family is going to take over as king of Israel. And this is how it works, David. You know that we're to exterminate all of them because we never want there ever to be someone who could possibly rise up and challenge your ability to be on the throne. David, we've got your back. So we've spent these years trying to kill people. Who cares if there's anyone from Saul's family out there? Well, David cares. That's who. David cares because he remembers a promise that he made to Saul's son, Jonathan, his best friend. And I'm imagining even as David is sitting there in the palace, he probably wishes that Jonathan was there. He probably had these dreams in his mind that someday Jonathan and I are gonna grow old together. We're gonna be dads together. We're gonna celebrate Father's Day together. Our kids are gonna play together. We're gonna tell stories about the good old days together. He remembers the covenant that he made with Jonathan. And here was the covenant back in 1 Samuel chapter 20. This is Jonathan speaking. He says to David, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness. And that word there, Lord's kindness, is the Hebrew word hesed meaning a loyal love, a covenant love, an everlasting love. He's saying, David, show me 
love. Show me kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed. Do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. See, even back then, Jonathan knew where this whole thing was going. He knew that David was the new anointed king of Israel. And he knew that it was just a matter of time for his family. And he knew that this regime was gonna do everything they could to exterminate the old regime. But David made a promise to Jonathan. Now some people break promises and some people just forget their promises. Not David and not this time. But there was a problem. Nobody around David knew of anyone from the family of Saul that still existed. And the reason was, like I said earlier, because if they would have known that there was one, they would have killed him already. So there's no record. We don't know, is there anyone? So the advisors find a servant, an old servant from the house of Saul, and his name was Ziba. And they bring him before David so that David can ask that same question of him. Verse three, it says, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? God's kindness, a loyal love, an everlasting love, a covenant love based on commitment, keeping your word. Because David is saying, I made a covenant with Jonathan and I'm gonna show him covenant love. Now Ziba, he wasn't born yesterday. He knows how this whole thing has been working in this extermination of the family of Saul. So he's just thinking, sure, you wanna show them God's kindness. As soon as I tell you who they are, you're just gonna find them and kill them, just like you've done with everybody else. So listen to Ziba's response at the end of verse three. He says, there is, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Literally, what Ziba is saying to David is, He's a cripple. David, you don't have to worry about this guy. This is not someone that is gonna rise up and take the throne away from the great King David. We don't know anything about the backstory of this guy. Ziba doesn't give a backstory to this guy. But 2 Samuel chapter four does give us a backstory. This was one of Jonathan's sons and his name was Mephibosheth. You see, when Mephibosheth was five years old, his father Jonathan and his grandfather Saul both died in the conflict with the Philistines. Both of them died. And the people that were taking care of little Mephibosheth, they knew that if the Philistines find anyone from the house of Saul, they're gonna be brutal to them. So Mephibosheth's nurse grabbed him, picked him up and started to run. They were heading for the hills. And as she's running, she trips and she falls. And little Mephibosheth breaks both of his ankles. He's crippled for life. Never able to walk, never able to take care of himself. The nurse picks him back up and they make their way across the Jordan River to a little no-name town called Lodabar. Now when you think about this town, you gotta think, Lodabar. Like, the bar is so low. Oh, girl, come on. It was the only clever thing I had. 
But Lodabar, the name actually means without pasture. Think a windswept, tumbleweed-tossed, low-rent town in eastern Montana. That's Lodabar. And Mephibosheth is there. Mephibosheth is there because he's hiding. First he was hiding from the Philistines, and now he's hiding from King David. If you want to think about what his life is characterized by, think shame. He's crippled. He's broken. He is helpless. He's ostracized. Probably every day of his life, he looks down at these broken feet that can't help him do anything. And he thinks to himself, I hate my life. I hate where I'm at in life right now. And to top it all off, I am an enemy to the reigning king, the most powerful man on the planet at this time. Things were not going well for him. But David finds out from Ziba that this man exists and David demands that he be brought to the palace. So there's Mephibosheth out in Lodabar, pulls the curtains open from his little low rent trailer out there in Lodabar and off in the distance, he sees a cloud of dust coming his way. And as it gets closer, he starts to see this is an entourage of black Escalades. And he knows that there's only one person that comes carrying an entourage of black Escalades. It's the king's people. They found me out. And because he can't walk, when they come to the door, they pick Mephibosheth off, they take him into their entourage, and they head from Lodabar back to Jerusalem. Every mile from Lodabar to Jerusalem, his hope fades and his sense of dread rises. Fear and dread overtakes him. There's a lot of scenes from the Bible that I want to see. This might be my top one. They take Mephibosheth out, walk him in, and they just lay him on the ground in front of the, in front of the king, in front of King David. He's there laying on the ground doing everything that he can to try to show the king the honor that he deserves. He tries to pull his legs out from underneath him to get him under him so that he can bow and put his forehead to the ground to honor King David. But he knows he's a death row inmate. He's just sitting there waiting for the judgment of the king waiting for his sentence. It never comes. Suddenly out of the quiet, he hears, Mephibosheth. The king said my name. The king knows my name. And unless I'm really dreaming, it sounded like his tone was kind. But Mephibosheth, he couldn't do anything but simply keep his head bowed and trembling, say to King David, your servant. Your servant. David doesn't understand this response of Mephibosheth. He says, Mephibosheth, don't be afraid, David said to him. 
For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you will always eat at my table. He's got to be asking, did, did I hear him right? Is, is that what he really said? Is he telling me the enemy that needed to be exterminated? Is he saying, I have a seat at the table? There's a chair for me? That's exactly what David was saying. Faster than you could say Mephibosheth three times, everything changed for him. He went from low debar to the king's table like that. In an instant, he went from fear to love. He went from ostracized to belonging. He went from running to the king, running from the king to sitting with the king. From obscurity to reputation. From helpless to hopeful. From enemy number one to a son. From shame to a position of honor. You know what the name Mephibosheth means? Everybody knows that, right? Mephibosheth means shame destroyer. Shame destroyer. As he sat there before David, there was one thing that could destroy the shame and it was simply this, the kindness of the king. The kindness of the king destroyed his shame. At the end of this story, it says twice. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. David made him like one of his own sons. Imagine that. Imagine David's family portrait. And right there in front, one side there's Solomon, the other side there's Absalom. And right in the middle is this little short guy. Short because his legs were crippled, but his smile is big. Because the one who was once an enemy was given a seat at the table. The enemy became a son. Who is it that deserves a place at the king's table? It's the first question. Who is it that receives a place at the king's table? What did Mephibosheth do to deserve a seat at the king's table? Did he impress David somehow? Did he coerce David into giving him that position? Did he have to fight and claw and earn that position? He did cotton picking nothing. He did absolutely nothing except hide from the king, except live in fear of the king, except live his life on the run from the king. That's the only thing he did. Can we just pause for a second, just ask ourselves a question? Do you ever feel like that? Not, not about King David, but about the king, the king. I feel like I'm, I'm just hiding right now. I don't want him to find me. I'm afraid. I'm afraid that if I'm brought to the palace and I say to him, your servant, give my life to him, I'm afraid of what he'll do. I have no idea, will he wreck my life? Are we on the run from the king? Mephibosheth. When he showed up, he didn't bring anything to the table except 
his shame, except his brokenness and his need. That's all he had to bring to the table. And one other thing, he brought a humble response. Isn't that a beautiful response to the king? Your servant, I belong to you. A humble response to just simply receive what it was that the king was offering. Friends, that's who gets a place at the table. Not the deserving people. The people that respond to the kindness of the king, they're the ones who get a seat at the table. And it's God's kindness, his loyal love that destroys our shame and gives us a seat at the table. We just respond to his kindness. But if we get a seat at the table, what does that seat represent? What does that actually give to us? Verse seven makes it really clear. When David said, don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. There was redemption there. A lot was lost when Jonathan died and Saul died and he escaped, a lot was lost. David redeemed it back, restored it back to him, a redemption of his real estate. But even bigger than that, he gave him a royal relationship, a royal relationship. He says, Mephibosheth, you will always eat at my table. You will be my son. David could have shown kindness in lots of different ways. I mean, it would have seemed extravagant if he would have sent a big annuity to Lodabar and just say, hey, make sure that Mephibosheth is taken care of all the days of his life. People would have looked at David and said, wow, what a kind king. He could have set up a trust fund for him and everyone would have been, wow, what a generous guy. He could have killed him, but he gave him a trust fund. No, not King David. He says, Mephibosheth, the crippled out there in Lodabar, he's coming to the palace and he's sitting at my table. He is gonna be a son to me. He will be like any of my other sons. Friends, do you see the connection between the story of Mephibosheth and our story? If we know Jesus, his story can be ours. Because every one of you, friends, every one of you has royalty stamped on you. Every one of you is made in the image of God. That's how he made you, royalty. His picture is stamped on you. But just like Mephibosheth, we are, there was a fall. There was a fall and it wasn't even our fall. It was Adam and Eve's fall a long time ago, but it affected us. It made us broken. It made us crippled. And since then, we like Mephibosheth, we've been, we can wander. We can wander out in the town of Lodabar, afraid, hiding, and on the run. But then just like Mephibosheth, there can be a knock on our door and someone comes to us. A palace attendant comes to us. And maybe that palace attendant for you, it was a, it was a parent, it was a friend, it was a coworker, a neighbor, maybe someone at the church, someone, anyone that told you the king wants to know you, 
The king wants to see you. I want you to hear about the kindness of a king. And we responded because we realized the king wants us to sit at the table. There's a chair that's empty. There's a name on it that's got your name on it. And the king is saying, come and sit at my table. I will restore you and give you a royal relationship. The third question I want us to talk about is what is our response? If we're here today and we've got a seat at the table, we know, we know the king. We know the kindness of the king. What is our response? Are we just thankful to be at the table? Are we just, are we just grabbing a hold of the seat, clutching it, hoping that no one takes it away from me? What is the response to sitting at the table? Well, a thousand years after David, there was another king that came to this earth and his name was Jesus. And he told a story as well about a same kind of a banquet table, but not King David's banquet table. This is the king's banquet table. And this table is set in the kingdom of heaven. And what the king said, he said to his servants, he said, I want you to go everywhere and tell everyone, I want you to come to my banquet. And it was an amazing thing. The servants went out and they invited everyone. But they came back and they said, you know, not everybody is responding. Some people have said, you know, I just got some oxen. You know, this is like, like this work thing that's going on in my life. I need to try out my oxen. I got work stuff to do. Other people said, I just got this new plot of land, this new found wealth, and I need to work the land. I need to manage my wealth. I don't have time for your banquet. And then someone else that was invited said, you know, I'm gonna get married. I've got relational things that I want to respond to. I don't have time for the party. Not everyone who's invited to the party jumps at the chance. But the king said this, Luke chapter 14, this is his response to his servants. He says, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. He is just saying, I want everyone invited. Every, Tom, Dick, and Mephibosheth. Everyone gets an invitation to the party. But the servant said, sir, what you have ordered has been done. But there is still room. There's still room at the banquet table for more. And then the master said this, Go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house may be full. When we read this story and we talk about David, it says that he has a man after God's own heart. David had a heart that said, I want my house to be full. I want everyone to have a seat at the table. That's the heart of God. That is the heart of Jesus. He wants everyone to have a seat at the table. He doesn't want us just gripping our chair hoping that nobody else gets a seat. He wants everyone to have a seat at the table. About a week and a half ago, I had a meeting with a, just the sweetest young woman that is involved in our church. And she just simply asked me, could I ask you some questions about what we believe? And I said, absolutely. We sat down and what had kind of precipitated this was she hadn't grown up in a church like ours. 
So she got out online and she Googled what do evangelicals believe? And I don't know where she looked. I don't know what that went to, but I can just about imagine it was some people that were talking a lot about what we're against and not much at all about what we're for. Because these were her questions. She said, do we hate? And then she would list a group of people. And my heart just sunk. And she said, do we hate? And she would list another group of people. And she said, and I don't know. She said, just so you know, I wanna be really honest. I'm in recovery right now. Is it okay that I'm here? I just sat there, just a, a lump in my throat. And she said, because I know a lot of people like that and they're not here and I want them to be here. Is it okay if they come? And with everything in me, I just looked at her and I just said, you have the heart of Jesus. And in part of me inside, I just said, please God, don't ever let me get to a place where I care about church business more than I care about the people that don't have a seat at the table right now. Please, God, don't let that ever happen to me. And then I said to her, I actually, I said this. I said, please never leave our church. I said, because what I want is not only for you to be here, but I want that heart that you have. Would you do everything you can to multiply it into my life and into the life of everybody you know at our church? Because friends, that's what Journey Church needs to be. We need to be those people that maybe have a seat at the table, but we lay awake at night thinking about the people that don't have a seat at the table. And we wanna tell them about the kindness of the king. We want them to know the king. We want them to know that there's a place with their name on it. There's a place for them. Our mission statement around Journey Church is simply this. We lead people to radical love in action like Jesus. We lead people to radical love in action like Jesus. I want us friends, I want me, I want us to have that heart just like my friend that we just think about. Not only do we just wanna do things out there, but we wanna show people the love of the King. We would put it in action. We wouldn't just sit here and talk about that. But when we leave here, we'd be thinking about how do I put the radical love of Jesus in action? Like David did, like Jesus did, that we would follow in his footsteps. I want us to think just a little bit about what that might look like to show people the love of the king. Can I just give you one hint? One hint, don't start with the fact that people out there are crippled, that they're broken, that they have shame. Don't say, hey, hey, crippled, hey, broken, hey, shameful, hey, quit doing that. You gotta stop doing that. Let's not let that be our lead foot. Now, I know I've, there's probably people that are tapping emails right now saying, journey, they're soft on sin. They don't think that people should repent of their sin. It's not true. Because I believe the apostle Paul had it right when he said, do you not know that it's God's kindness that leads people to repentance? It's hesed, it's the loyal love of Jesus that destroys shame. Let's not just sit and point out people's sin and brokenness and shame, let's tell them about the king. Let's tell them about the greatness and the kindness of the king. Would you just simply learn how to 
Tell people how the king loved you. If you have a seat at the table, would you just simply learn, this is how the king loved me. This is how he restored me. This is my Mephibosheth story. Let me tell you about it. Because King David, he was looking outward. Jesus was looking outward. This is how Paul said it in Romans chapter five. He says, you see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love, his own kind of love, his hesed love, loyal love, covenant love. God demonstrates his own kind of love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does Paul say we brought to the table? We're powerless, we're ungodly, and we're sinners. And in that state, just like King David, God shows us his kindness. He shows us the kindness of the king. The very beginning of this story, there was a question that was burning in the soul of David. And it was this, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul, my enemy, to whom I can show God's kindness? Question burned in his soul. And Journey, I'm gonna be down on my knees and down on my face, praying that that same question burns in me and it burns in you. Is there anyone out there, enemy or not, is there anyone out there to whom I can show the kindness of the king? I wanna ask you to set your things aside and I want you to go to prayer and I just want you to ask the king today, is there anything that you would want me to hear from you today from this message? And king, is there anything that you would want me to do to put that into practice? while you're still in a posture of prayer and just continue to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I just wonder if there's some that are here today that would feel in their heart and in their mind and in their life, I'm hiding. I'm hiding from the king. I'm afraid of the king. I don't know what it would mean to simply say, I wanna be your servant. I'm on the run from the king. But maybe something in you today, there's a stirring where you're saying, I want a seat at the table. I want to be a son of the king. I want to be a daughter of the king. I want a place at the table. If that would be your heart this morning, I want to help you do that. And I'm just going to pray a simple prayer. You can just pray this along with me in the quietness of your heart. Something like this. Jesus, thank you for loving me personally. And thank you for becoming a person so that I could know everything about you and have a real relationship with you. Thank you for making a place at your table for me. Thank, for, thank you for moving toward me and breaking down all the barriers that keep me from having a relationship with you and experiencing you. Thank you for dying on the cross in my place to pay the penalty for my sin 
for my guilt, my brokenness, and my shame. You didn't wait for me to get it all together, but you moved toward me. And I want to respond to you today by moving humbly and boldly toward you. Because Jesus, I need you. I open my life to you. And I receive you today as my King and my Savior. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin and giving me eternal life. I want to turn from my life of sin today and I want to turn to you. Take control of my life and make me the kind of person that you want me to be. If you prayed that with me today, we think that's one of the biggest decisions that you're ever going to make in your life. And we don't want to let this opportunity pass without giving you an opportunity to acknowledge to at least one other person that you made that decision. And what we do around here is we just ask you to simply slip up your hand and make eye contact with me, and then you can slip it right back down. I won't do anything to embarrass you or draw attention to you. You can raise your hand now. Jesus, thank you that because of what you did for us, your death in our place, there's a seat at the table for us. I pray that we would grow in the awareness of what that means, what's been given to us by your kindness, a seat at the table, the restoration of things that have been broken, the restoration of things that have been lost, and a royal relationship. We can be your son, we can be your daughter. And Jesus, I just pray for those that have that seat at the table, Lord, that they wouldn't just clutch their seat, thankful just that I got mine, but that we would be the kind of people that scooch over and make room for more. Jesus, we're gonna take you at your, at your word that there's still room for more. We love you, we trust you, and we ask your spirit to empower us to lead people to radical love and action just like you did. In your powerful and risen name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.